Hello everyone and welcome to another episode or podcast episode of uh, Product Coalition, the Melbourne series. Uh, it's great to get going on uh, the second uh, podcast in this series. Today I want to give a shout out first of all to Proud Mary Coffee. Um, Proud Mary is a speciality coffee roaster, cafe, coffee educator and retailer based in Melbourne, Australia and Portland uh, in Oregon, USA. Um, I'm personally fortunate to help out with um, Proud Mary and their story. Um, so a big thanks to all of the Proud Mary coffee team here in Melbourne and over in the US. To find out more about Proud Mary, if you're in Oz, visit proudmarycoffee.com.au or proudmarycoffee.com in the US. Personally, I recommend actually get down to the cafe if you can over in Portland or in Collingwood here in Australia. And my top tip off the menu is the potato hash. Uh, I'm Really excited to have Brad Dunn joining me. Uh, me and Brad have been connected a little while through Product Coalition as a community. Um, and uh, we, we're going to smash through four fast topics in under 40 minutes. And um, we're going to go a bit all over the place with uh, thinking and talking. Um, so um, try and keep up. But firstly, thank you, Brad, for thank joining me. I know you've jumped off a flight pretty Thanks late Thanks for last having night. me, yeah. Um, could, could you mind just kicking us off? Give us a bit of your background, how you, how you got to... Where you are in product. Into product. Yeah, pro I feel like product managers always have these weird origin stories. Um, but I guess for me, you know, I, I, uh, I really had to work out how to build software when I we started a, a digital agency called uh, Nazori about in 2010, I think. And um, as part of that, you know, I started working with the creative team, working out how to build software. And then you start to think, well, what's kind of the right way of doing this? And I sort of got exposed to some. Uh, I was sort of lucky enough to have this this guy called Scott Tong, who I'd met at a family barbecue in San Francisco, and he was a designer at IDEO at the time. And um, he went on to start If This Then That. The um, wow, yeah, yeah. And I think when he, when he started it, I think it was very If This Then That was very small. They were kind of running out of money, and I didn't I didn't know what it meant at the time. And um, yeah, and he he sort of you know kind of said you know you should check out how IDEO builds software and how they they think about users and, and problems and stuff and, and that sort of sent me on this kind of journey of just just reading as much as I could about it and we sort of took that back into the business and then started to try and change the way we were building software and uh, and that sort of thing and then um, yeah that was great it was super fun I really enjoyed it uh, having that business and then we yeah we went on to um, yeah took some other product management roles on and then ended up as a, a head of product for this this publicly listed company and that was kind of a bit of a journey and uh, yeah, so that's, and then it's kind of led me to more product roles, which kind of do today and that's kind of it really, how I got into it. Cool, cool. And you're Melbourne born and bred? No, I'm actually from Perth. So yeah, moved out about 10, 10 years ago. Actually, Proud Mary's was probably one of the first places I ever went as right, a, okay. when I first came to Melbourne. So seeing what coffee could be like. Yep. was pretty good. And the potato hash is excellent, yeah. I must say. Yeah. It's up there for you as well. Yeah. Good, good. All right, let's let's get going on some Melbourne uh, questions. Uh, what what and you don't have to say proud Mary. Sure. Favorite tea or coffee joint in Melbourne? Oh, that's a good question. Um, tea, I would have to say Kura in North Melbourne. They do amazing tea, um, and I actually drink, probably drink more tea than I do coffee these days. But uh, yeah, if I drink coffee, I'll actually probably come here, like to Annie Pegs uh, downstairs. It's pretty rare for me to for come out for coffee these days. Cool, cool. And for lunch in the CBD, what's your favourite? Oh, lunch in the CBD. I think Masshack is pretty good. Right. It's like a style. Um, it's like a Malaysian, Indonesian. It's like Papa Rich's, but a bit more. Right. 
a bit more ghetto. <laughs> okay. Something like that. Yeah, that's probably where I'd say. <laughs> cool. Favourite tram route? Oh, the 86, no doubt. Where's that go from? goes oh, from sorry. Collingwood to, I don't know where the other <laughs> side, but it's, it's a real rite of passage catching the 86 <laughs> at night, seeing if you can survive. You get off before you get to the river and go south of the river? Yeah, I don't know where it... I, I always catch... I mean, it gets me home. That's right, how I okay. know it, yeah. Awesome. Um, what's your favourite product or, or just general meet-up or conference in, in Melbourne? I'm, I'm really bad with this stuff. Like, I, I think historically, because I've always had startups and been broke yeah. perpetually and then like going, going from like in full-time employment to actually so I've always been like oh you know I should just be home reading a book or right. working on the product and I've always looked at that like going to conferences as a bit of a extracurricular activity that didn't justify the time but every time right. I have it's been good like I've been to a few of the product anonymous ones they've been okay. really good cool. um yeah cool and favorite suburb Fitzroy of course Collingwood down here it's great it's all north of, the, north of um, Melbourne CBD for yeah. anyone who wants to visit Melbourne. Okay, let's get, um, let's get stuck into it. So we've got four, four fast topics is what we're going to try and smash through um, all around the, the world of product. Um, so the first one, Brad, um, talking about startups, when should one become two? Oh, like, in te- like in team size. Yeah, this is yeah. A, bit of a, a bit of a personal obsession of mine. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really hard question. Like, I, I'm not even sure there is a right answer. But um, like, I work in a team of 13 at the moment, which is quite big. Um, and yeah, I think there's sort of this. I w- you know, one of the things I've been thinking about this week is you know we have these Zoom calls and we have some remote staff and things like that. And you can see like 13 faces on the board. And I think when you sort of start to see that you could kind of draw a line around some of the staff and you go, well, they're all talking about this mobile app, right? And these guys are all talking about this API. And so you sort of think in those retros and stand-ups, you've got these people that are listening to other people talk about things that have nothing to do with them or that they... Yep. Um, so that's sort of when you start to think, well, what if what if we split these in half and then gave each one kind of a really clear remit, set some OKRs or something, and then just kind of get out of their way? I think that's probably when you start need to think about um, team size. But... Um, I had to sort of put a bit of a, a case together for the, the business I'm at at the moment. And, um, yeah, I was like, I wonder if there is a perfect team size. And, uh, yeah, it turns out it's fairly well studied. Like there's this yeah. there's this thing called um, – I came across this thing called the Ringelman effect, which is right. – uh, yeah, it's just it's like <laughs> super nerdy product psych stuff, right? But right. Um, this this guy – Mr. Set, Ringelman? Yeah, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Ringelman. He, he, right. s- he sets up this experiment. I think it's a Ringelman. Um, and uh, he, he gets – someone to pull on a rope, right? So you, so I give you the rope and right. I say, Jay, you know, pull the rope and you put in maximum amount of effort, right? So you, you contribute a, a huge amount of effort. And then uh, what happens is we put a second person on the rope, right? And we say, well, how much effort are you now going to pull? And what happens is you actually pull a little bit less, right? Mm. And then you put a third person on the rope and what happens is you, you pull a little bit less again. And it's sort of this linear line, and so it's sort of this case to be made, well, the more people on a team, less individual effort they're going to pull. And then um, I thought this was really interesting. And then um, I came across this other, this other stu- this, another publication, I think it was the HBR, and there was one in science as well. Um, and they, take, they give teams a bunch of tasks and they seemingly you know, dull tasks. And they say, you know, at the end of the task, did you feel your team was too big, the right size or, or too small? And you end up drawing this histogram and they kind of dial into this sort of like 4.6 number. Now, obviously, 
a team size right. of exactly 4.6s ridiculous Tough. but um yeah it's kind of interesting like seeing that there, there is some kind of research about bigger team sizes and things get a bit a bit yeah. less um less productive and that's kind of a long-winded answer but um, no no uh, well uh, the other answer could have been two pizzas yeah well that's so. that's sort of how it came about it's like how yeah. do you become a two pizza team yeah and i think it's sort of it's it's very hard to to make that first split and um in some ways it, it requires someone to really let go a little bit too because when you say you know we're going to put these people into autonomous teams someone really has to have the courage to say you know i'm, I'm comfortable with that and, and that that's very hard yep. for a lot of people yeah um, okay let's let's shift gears base camp yes i know you've got some thoughts on what's been yeah, yeah. Out and tweeted about from from the base camp side yeah i just think everyone t- talk, every, talk us for it yeah everyone i bump into lately is talking about this shape up book which is great um uh, I think it's Ryan, is it Ryan Singer or something who wrote it? I forget his name, but um, yeah, there's some really interesting stuff in there. So um, yeah, I've been talking to different product managers about what they like about some of the things that are in the book. Um, yeah, so they've come up with this, uh, the two things I really took away from it was one, I think product managers are notoriously, uh, <laughs> you, you talk about backlogs, right? Everyone's got a backlog with all this stuff in it. And I think what came out of that that Shape Up book was, it's a tremendous amount of anxiety to look at a backlog, right? Because it's all this <laughs> stuff you have to do. And everyone knows you have to do more stuff. But just the sheer list of it gives, give everyone, gives everyone this sense of, of anxiety. And I think when everyone read that, they went, yeah, that's so true. Like it's just it's all these things you don't have time to build, you don't have the resources to build. So they've kind of said, well, we're just not going to do that. Um, and, you know, they just say, well, good ideas will just bubble up to the table. Um, and I think that really spoke to a lot of product managers out there and and they've always had a bit of a like kind of sanctimonious approach to like yep. to pretty much everything, um, some of which I agree with. But um, yeah, I think that really spoke to people. And also the, the second thing I really liked and um, it's something we're actually using at the moment is this these hill charts that they do. I don't know if you've seen right. them. No. Yeah, so, you know, you ask any cross-functional team, say when's this feature going to be ready? And they go, oh, you know, three weeks or two weeks or whatever which is all wrong usually. Um, so they've said, well, we're not going to do that. So they draw these hill charts. And if you imagine, you know, when you're coming up the hill, you're kind of like working out the details. Like you don't know what to do yet. So what they do um, is they kind of, let's say the feature is we want to build a new report. You have a little circle on the, um, on the hill chart and you say, well, we're sort of halfway up. So we're halfway to working out what we need to do. And then when you get over the hill, it's all delivery. We know exactly what we're going to do. It's just kind of like this is all the delivery stuff. So when people say, you know, where are you at? How long is this going to take? They'll visualise all the features on this hill chart. Right. Um, and so it's a good, a good kind of visual artefact for management. It says, well, we don't really know what we're doing yet. Um, because what happens is if you create tickets to, do, to deliver something, you know, you end up you end up creating more tickets on the way as you learn. You're like, oh, okay, we're going to do this as well. So if you're just looking at a, we've done seven out of the ten tasks, it's kind of a really tricky way to know how far along you are really mm. in the uh, progress. So I like I like those two elements. Um, I mean, there's other things that Basecamp do that I, I kind of don't necessarily, you know, I haven't always really gelled with. Like I know they don't set goals, um, which I sort of wonder if it's very true because – if, if they had a business, surely not going broke is probably a goal. You know, not losing staff is probably a goal. Uh, they might they might look at that pretty differently. But 
um, yeah, I think I think there's some great stuff in this book, and I know they're refining it as well. So they they asked for some feedback, and I had spoken to the the author on Twitter a little bit about it, and we actually spoke a bit about team sizes because cool. I think um, one thing I've always been curious about is their org design, right? So like, how many teams do they have? What do those teams work on? What's the genetic makeup of each team? And he sort of came back to me and he said, you know, we've got, um, I think it's like they have a team of three uh, on the front end. They have two teams of three or something like that. Um, so I think some of those details will come out. It sounds like they'll probably publish the book in a bit more detail. I think they're kind of going to collect some feedback from the public and, and go from okay. there. So, um, You mentioned earlier about using a, a visual system to share yep. progress. What's your thoughts on digital displays of where we're at? So, oh, know, like gecko boards and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, or, yeah, or just to share the size of a backlog or a yeah. board versus physical boards or, and printed material. You know, yeah. Have you got any preference? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think like I, I took um, you know, I took a team out to Seek one day, and we went and met with one of their high performing teams. I took some product managers and designers. Seek out there. for anyone listening overseas, uh, HR national HR platform, Seek.com.au here in Australia. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and I think that was the first time I'd ever been somewhere where the physical printed out kind of agile boards were sort of um was so prevalent and I, I actually found that really great. Like they had all, you know, it was just all these really interesting things on a wall and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Um, but yeah, I've typically always just kind of used digital boards right. and things like that. Um, yeah, that's, yep. yeah, I don't really have any. Cool, cool. Um, let's jump into interviewing yeah. product managers. Yeah. Tell me about some experiences you've had or lessons learned. Yes. Um, I have this I have this one this one interview I did which has been quite memorable. So um, last year we we started a business called Ono, which was my brother and I. And um, before that, um, uh, I was I was interviewing at uh, Google for a job at, in Sydney on the to work on the Google Maps team. And um, it was hands down the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, but I, it was amazing. Like it was such yeah. an amazing experience. And I, I kind of walked away from it thinking, that's that's a really great way of interviewing. Um, and so they did this. They did this really interesting thing where they, they interviewed me in isolation. So, so if you and I were interviewing someone, and I kind of get a bit of a sense you're not really into them, you know, I kind of pick up on that vibe, and it might influence the way I feel. So they kind of inf- interview in in isolation, and they they score you. So it's, I think it's like, um, you know, don't hire, uh, reluctantly don't hire, um, that kind of stuff. So you get right. scored on these four metrics, and then. Um, which, which I liked in itself. And then the second thing was um, they they score you on these attributes. So it's like creative, analytical, strategic, Googliness. Um, and the idea is they ask you these these questions, these puzzles, right, which is um, – and so I get this big pack and I had a couple of weeks to kind of prep for the interview and, and then they uh, – um, yeah, they give you these puzzles, right, right. which uh, – uh, some some were good. The creative ones I was I was really into, um, and the analytical ones just really hurt my brain. I'm not right. hi, I'm a high school dropout, you know that <laughs> kind of stuff. And and then I had to learn how to do these like long form mathematical kind of what they call Fermi estimations. And and she, my first interview really coached me on that. Uh, she said she was um, a woman in Shanghai, and she said just get really good at these Fermi estimations. And if you've never done them before, it's basically like trying to work out how many grains of sand on a beach, how many roads in a country, that kind right. of stuff. And which, which sort of makes sense because um, if you think about like Gmail or something like that, one of, the, one of the example questions they give you is, 
um, you know, how many queries does Gmail do in a second, that sort of stuff. And so, you know, I was getting really good at these. I spent two weeks, you know, really practicing. I was like, how many coffee beans in a, in a cafe? <laughs> how many walnuts in a, in a forest? <laughs> and I was like getting real good. My wife was constantly like just throwing these things in me in the kitchen and stuff. I was getting real good. And then, so my first one was really good. My first question was like, design a fridge for a blind person. I think I did pretty well with that. And then the second one, I was getting ready, getting ready for these like Fermi estimations and I was expecting a very short question. And then this guy gives me this question that was about five and a half minutes long and I just was caught totally off guard by the length of this and seemingly unrelated, um, you know, bits of information. And, and so the, the question was basically, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but it was, um, you know, a, a piece of technology comes out overnight and... Your, it, it makes all of car transport totally uh, obsolete. Yeah. Your job as a private business is to like buy back the roads, come up with a solution to use them and, and work out how much money you're going to make from the solution. So all I had was i got to work out how many roads there are on planet Earth. <laughs> and I was like, this is three-dimensional. I wasn't prepared for this. And uh, I'm trying to do these like long-form Fermi estimations on a whiteboard. And you get, you get like three puzzles in 15 minutes. And yeah, it was amazing. I've told some other product managers that story i think some of them wake up uh late at night with sweats and stuff yeah but i actually think i actually think um i think not coming from an engineering background or a mathematics background um i think was probably the big the big thing for me so i think uh yeah if you're good at engine like i've asked engineers this question they seem to just like go oh yeah you just like break it down and (laughs) say you do it and i think i think probably that that, that's the bit that um yeah I, i didn't quite do too well on but um the process was just great because they're not asking you these um they're not asking you these really oddball questions. They're sort of like, well, here's a here's a general question about creativity. Here's a general question about strategy, and so they're kind of just testing that without. Mm. Um, yeah, it's 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 great. It's like it's a really great process, and it's and you go online. There's heaps of YouTube videos about the interview, and oh. um, yeah, it's fantastic. That's it's, I would I would almost copy everything about it if I was interviewing product managers today. Where would you start then with that? What was the one thing, what's the first thing you're going to change about interviewing, let's say, your next product? Yeah, I think I would do, I would work out those attributes, like the googliness, the strategic right. bit, like whatever those things are that are important to the organisation. And then I would just kind of come up with some questions that demonstrate that. That's that's probably where I'd start. And I also like the isolation thing. I think, um, like, I've been in lots of rooms where you get three or four people and I think there's probably too much bias coming into the room and... Um, and so the, I, I think what they do is I'm sort of inferring this. I don't, I don't, I don't know hundred percent, but, um, I think what happens is like, if you are, if you get some scores that are like reluctantly higher, some that are like absolutely higher, some that are don't higher, I think they look for more consistent scores. So yeah. as you go through the process and you meet more people, I think what they're looking for is variance and they're trying to kind of make sure that everyone's got a consistent message. Um, and I'm told that they put together this big pack. Um, I mean, I'm sure someone from Google can probably <laughs> break this down better than I can. Um, but yeah, that I'd, yeah, that's probably the two things I'd, I'd take. Fantastic, away. fantastic. All right, let's let's change directions again. Next topic is uh, building weapons grade oh, yeah. data sets. Yeah, this is this is something. <laughs> Not like any other grade, yeah. weapons grade data yeah, so sets. Th- so this is um, I, I I used this term a couple of times a few weeks ago, and people thought it was quite amusing, but it's. It's not something I came up with. I actually, right. I saw it on this docu- this documentary about Cambridge Analytica. So it's both an apt description of what some people are trying to do, but also quite yep. a nefarious description for it. But um, yeah, it's interesting because like I'm a bit of a data and analytics nerd. Like I quite like 
attribution data, like being really good in all the tools. Um, and so, like, it's a, a project I'm working on at the moment is to really um, is to really build out this this attribution database using Segment. So we'll kind of okay. you know build out all the stuff for the analytics tools. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like most companies I've I've come come into contact with that analytics layer is always a bit odd. It's always a bit um, complicated. The data is not very organized, and and I think I think just having that saves a huge amount of time. So if you can if you can say see the same events in you know uh, in Mixpanel or um, you know Amplitude and Intercom and HubSpot, then it's just kind of a consistent message everywhere you're looking is the same. All the different teams see the same amount of information. But I think in practice what I see is like a lot of different tools, all the data is kind of different, um, so no one trusts the data, so you yep. can't make good decisions based on it. So you sort of have to get that sort of quote-unquote weapons grade um, data set kind of in place. And then every all the decisions you're making are really good. So um, you take Intercom, right? You want to send a, uh, a life cycle message to new users to make sure that they're adopting the features and they kind of know what's going on. I think if you can if you can make sure that you've got really good attributes and events that you can send those messages on, you can sort of really target those users with those needs specifically. So if I think about Spotify, right? So I get a message from Spotify every now and then that says, you know, here are these bands that have got concerts near you, but it's all based on these attributes that they know about me, the albums I listen to. So it's useful, right? So even though, it, you know, it's probably not good to use military grade terms, right? Which is never good, right? Front lines, weapons grade, but it's kind of a kind of a bit of an apt description, I think, sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important to get mm. that stuff sorted out early on, just in teams. So, so do you see the, the tool being the single version of truth or the data that might sit behind a tool being the single version of truth? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't know if there's... I've only ever used Segment... To be honest, like to store this stuff now, um, I often wonder whether I'm sure there are competitors to that product. How has that? How's using that tool changed things for you? Yeah, that you couldn't do before. Yeah, so I think um, like in the past, I've seen uh, a bunch of user attributes in Intercom, right? So this person is a they're part of this persona. They have this name. They're on this payment plan. Um, and then something changes over the years, like they they swap from zero to mild or something like that, and suddenly all that data in Intercom just it's still there, still looks like they're on plan number three, but it's wrong. Right. So um, the value of Segment is you can kind of put all this stuff inside of it, and then you can make sure that you know all of the all of those attributes are kind of correct all the time. Now, obviously, someone's going to have to build a connection between the database and Segment and and get all that stuff sorted out, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, I think it just gives you confidence right. in the data. Like I like to look at the data and know that what I'm seeing is true and, you know, I can kind of make good decisions around that stuff. Because um, otherwise you just you just spin in circles, you're in meetings and everyone's got sort of a, an interpretation of the data that's, that's, um, that's based on some single event that they've seen. Oh, no, that's not true because I spoke mm. to this client who, who said that that wasn't true. So I think just getting that stuff really organised is important. Interesting. I, I know um, last year I, I personally built out um, some reporting in Tableau. Um, yeah, yeah. And jumping in and building out a set of reports for myself um, was um, was really, you know, a unique thing for, for learning the absolute back end yeah. on, on the product and really getting the most from a data perspective yeah. um, to, to inform me 
how the tool is really used down at the lowest mm. level data attribute sort of um, yeah. piece. Um, do you build your own reports? Do you no, enjoy I it when people, yeah. you know, you rather have someone build out reports for you? Um, well, the com- so the company I'm at at the moment is called Radar, and we have like a whole extensive reporting suite about customer feedback and stuff like that. So they have they have some um, some pretty comprehensive reporting that they'll build for customers inside the dashboard. But in terms of the product side, um, I would always use. I mean, I, I tend to use Mixpanel for all of the data reporting that I need, um, right. but mostly because it's just kind of what I know how to use now. Like I think um, it's in Radar use uh, Amplitude. So I'm actually keen to just kind of check it out and see what the differences is. Um, but I'll use that for kind of the quantitative stuff. So if I want to crunch numbers, like percentages of users, retention numbers, that sort of thing, I'll use something like Mixpanel. And then and then Full Story is kind of the qualitative, let's like creepily watch videos of users stumbling through the product. That's always super fun in the mornings to do. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I, I kind of lean on those tools probably the most. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, this has been good fun. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much we, for having me. We smashed through the uh, the four topics in well under 40 minutes, which is uh, good. It's awesome. Um, let's do this again. Absolutely. Thanks All for right. having me. Thanks. Cheers, Brad. Um, thanks, everyone, for, for listening. Uh, thanks to Brad Dunn for um, jumping on in this episode. Uh, thanks again to Proud Mary um, for hosting us from a location perspective today. And uh, look forward to sharing some more product people stories with you all again soon. Thank you.